happiness in life is not about pursuing things that will make you happy. Happiness is really found by pursuing things that will make other people happy. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? I'm ready. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape for your free audiobook. Hey dudes, welcome to the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy Davis Coe, and I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July celebration and that nobody put an eye out. Although, honestly, what says America more in 2017 than the threat of physical violence? Maybe a misogynistic tweet. Who knows, maybe I'll get one after this episode airs. A girl can always dream. But turning to happier thoughts... Today's Gen Xer in the hot seat is Dr. Christine Carter, a sociologist and senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. Christine is the author of two books, The Sweet Spot, How to Accomplish More by Doing Less, which comes out in paperback this month, and Raising Happiness. Drawing on the latest scientific research on positivity, productivity, and elite performance, Dr. Carter demonstrates a sweet paradox. By doing less, we can actually accomplish more. And it's all based in science, so it's true. So let's get happier, shall we? So I'm here today with happiness expert, Dr. Christine Carter. Hey, Christine, how are you? I'm happy to be here, Nancy. I'm so happy to talk to you. And you have so many secrets to reveal to my midlife mixtape listeners. So I'm really excited about our conversation today. But, you know, it does not matter how many degrees you have and what your field of expertise is, because we always start the midlife mixtape podcast with the most important question. What was the first concert you ever saw and what were the circumstances? Oh, I actually have a kind of a funny story. Well, the very, very first concert I ever saw was Wham! back <sighs> in middle school. But I don't really remember anything about it. The, the concert- You don't remember? Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean you don't remember anything about it? I don't remember where it was. I really don't remember anything. I like can't even remember the name of the girl who took me other than my parents weren't thrilled about me being friends with her well, and really not thrilled about me going to a Wham! concert with her. But you know, at the time, it, it was like all, you know, I heart Duran Duran on our binders. And um, it was what good. Decade, what decade were you raised in? Uh, <laughs> I heart Simon Le Bon. George Michael was really... I heart George Michael, but he does not heart me back. Yes. No, he doesn't. But I have to say, because you two just came around, mm-hmm. uh, Joshua Tree was uh, the kind of, was my second concert. It's the first concert that I actually remember. I really wanted to go so badly with my friends who were two years older than me and my parents wouldn't let me go. And it was like this big thing that, you know, there were like night after night of tears. And, um, and then one day my dad came to me and he said, I got us tickets for Joshua tree. I will take you to the concert. So all my friends were of course, 
in general admission and he got us really nice seats and he, you know, I went sort of like bratty and sort of, I was glad I got to go. But not but, with him. But, and not in like a seat because how uncool is that, right? Like I just was being such a brat. But then I had, it was like an amazing show and it was totally bonding for me and my dad. And, and I like saw him in a totally different light. And and for me, I was like, wow, that's what a big concert is, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it was like, I can remember being moved to tears. And, um, and it, it was a really profound experience. Now, you yeah. study the science of happiness. So this is actually a good time to establish on a real quantifiable basis the role that music can play in elevating a crappy mood. It's real, right? It's, oh, yeah, it's proven. It's totally real. So it's we have totally permission real. to dance party when we feel when we're feeling blue. Yes, it's a, it's a, that's a great popular happiness tip is to dance party. And you know, it's really interesting because I think that I think the neuroscientists are starting to understand a little bit better why it all happens, but what's interesting to me is that it's not the same sort of music that elevates mood for each person. It's very individual. So while it's universal that for human beings music can change your mood. It can elevate in particular, but it can also make you feel depressed. It can trigger all kinds of emotions um, in people. It's not, it's obviously not the same for each person, right? It's, it's a whole different language right. um, depending. So, you know, even though there are some sort of universal findings about upbeat music, raising your heart rate, which makes you want to move, there's really not a ton that's universal in terms of what type of music will make us happiest. What was the music that they blasted at that South American dictator when they wanted to get him out of, was it Manuel Noriega? Noriega, yeah. Just just think about that. For some people, that's their total jam. And yet the, the American government thought that that would be the thing to actually drive him out insane and out of his mansion. And I'm pretty sure it, and it worked. worked. Right. Yeah, it worked. It was right. like three days of super loud. I think it was Def um, Leppard. Rock music. <laughs> I, think I think it was it- Def Leppard. It oh. would have worked on me in about 35 minutes. I know. Don't tell my teenagers <laughs> that that would work on me. <laughs> yeah. Just tell them not to listen to the podcast. So <laughs> one of the reasons I was so excited that you were willing to come on the podcast was because I've read a lot about this U-curve of happiness. So it's this notion that there is a decline in happiness during the first couple decades of adulthood. It kind of bottoms out in the 40s and early 50s, and then it starts to climb again. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's it, and it's traceable to like the advent of having kids and then kids leaving the home and people have sort of a rebirth after midlife when they are no longer have the responsibilities of having kids. Now that it doesn't mean, you know, people quickly jump to like, oh, parenting is miserable and you shouldn't have kids if you want to stay happy. That's actually not it at all. What it points to is that there's a real distinction between being happy, like leading a, a happy life or a joyful life and leading a meaningful life. What children do when, when we're, when we tend to be at the bottom of uh, the U-curve of happiness in terms of our life stages, we don't have as many positive emotions or pleasurable experiences as we have at other times in our lives, in our 20s or in our 60s. 
um, when our lives are, for the most part, our own. But our lives are incredibly meaningful. They're more, they tend to be more fulfilling. There is no sort of U-curve in terms of fulfillment for most people. And so it's just important to keep those things in mind. Now, usually leading a meaningful life ultimately leads to a happy life. People who have a lot of meaning and fulfillment also tend to have a lot of positive emotions. It's really interesting, actually, to look at when they don't, right? Like the circumstances in which some people are happy but aren't, do not have fulfillment and other people who have fulfillment but not happiness. The people who are happy but unfulfilled researchers call them, they, they basically say they're sort of selfish and, sh- and shallow, but in mm-hmm. more professional um, ways. And it doesn't... They say it, it in science words. Lot. Right. Yeah. They say it in really like subjective well-being is blah, blah, blah. It's they like actually assign numbers to it. But what they mean is they're shallow and selfish. They're very <laughs> self-centered, very pleasure-oriented, tends to be high, highly correlated with wealth, but not, you know, the type of wealth that the people are engaged in giving away. Um, Mm -hmm. The reverse is also really interesting to look at and I think more informative in some ways. Um, And that's when people have a lot of meaning and fulfillment, but not a lot of happiness. So think about Nelson Mandela while he was in jail, right? right? No happiness there, tons of meaning for his life, right? So we tend to, we tend, when we lead fulfilling, meaningful lives, we tend to go through periods of time in which we don't have a ton of positive emotions. We wouldn't describe those times as joyful, but that's okay. We come out the other end. There is this U-curve, right? Well, and what I love about Christine's work is that she really, uh, so you've got two books built around the science of happiness. One is called Raising Happiness, and this is for you folks, you know, who are still in the period where you're raising your kids, and it's about how to um, help your child create habits of happiness. And then the one that came after that was The Sweet Spot, How to Find Your Groove at Home and at Work. And I think because that one came along when my kids were almost out of the nest, that one really, that's been on my nightstand table for two years now because it came out in 2015. Paperback is coming out this month, you guys. So take a look for it, The Sweet Spot. I'll include links on the show notes, of course. What I loved about both those books is it's very tactical. It's not like woo-woo, Marin. Okay, you do live in Marin, though. We've, we've got to mention that you do live in Marin. But um, it's not like theoretical, in the clouds kind of stuff. There are some really specific and practical habits uh, you can practice that science shows leads to happier outcomes. So do you want to talk about, and to add on to that, there's so much of a focus in those kinds of practical tips on gratitude and giving. So can you talk about how that outward focus comes back to help you feel more fulfilled and happy? You've you've cut to the chase. And and my editor had me put the chapters about um, leading a meeting, meaningful life and being fulfilled and, and that are about giving at the very end. And I love Nancy. Nobody ever asks me about that in the front. So thank, thank you. I, because I do think it's the most important thing. So I'm a giver, Christine. I'm a giver. I'm just You're trying just to, to you know, get to the question <laughs> that you want. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, okay. So here's, here's what we know about happiness and giving. If we look at the last 150, 100 years, depending on the field, 
of findings that we have related to overall well-being, you know, what we'll call happiness, but it could it also relates to physical health and longevity in psychology and neuroscience and anthropology and sociology. What we see is that the single best predict well, there's only one real big finding around around happiness, right? Again and again, decade after decade, field after field, we find the same thing about happiness. And that is that a person's happiness is best predicted by the breadth and the depth of their relationships to other people. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that more closely, what you see is that there's a real difference between being focused on yourself and out to to sort of it's and by focused on yourself i don't mean taking care of yourself i mean really pursuing happiness for yourself and not for other people mm-hmm. right so out to to you know win it for yourself to the exclusion of other people and there so there's that and psychologists call that you know self survival it makes us very anxious and stressed and tense and it makes us prone to heart disease and and feelings of isolation and then there's what psychologists call species survival and it's the you know the really connected people are really out pursuing happiness not for themselves but for other people right and and we don't usually think about oh well everything i do today is to make other people happy because that's not really it it's more about sort of preventing suffering of other people reducing suffering in other people looking at how to help other people survive in the world so as a parent obviously it's sort of like we're helping our kids survive and obviously we want them to thrive as well but it's the sort of outward orientation the person the person who can make eye contact walking down the street with total strangers who um, stops to talk to the person who's living on the street there who chats with the barista like we usually ass- assign those types of things to real extroverts mm-hmm. and and it is easier for extroverts to do that but it's not it's not just extroverts who benefit right we we think of it as as extroverted behavior it's actually better thought of as the behavior of happier people whether or not they're extroverted or introverted it's that connection to your feeling a connection to your community but what I found fascinating from your research was that it doesn't necessarily or isn't limited necessarily to those kinds of outwardly expressed actions. And I'm thinking specifically about the loving kindness meditation, the meta, mm-hmm. which was something that I ended, you know, I've ended up using that now for two years. It's something I do when I'm walking. Do you want to talk about what that is, the loving kindness meditation? Yeah. So meta uh, or loving kindness meditation is a is a traditional Buddhist meditation in which you send well wishes to um, other people. And you start with like different categories of people. So people who you feel grateful for, people who you love, people who you feel neutral about. That's sort of an interesting one to try and think like, okay, who in my life do I feel neither good nor bad about, right? Makes you realize how judgmental, <laughs> at least for me, my experience was like, yeah, no, same. I'm judging everyone. I either love same. everybody or, you know, I gave um, a lot then, of I, I gave a lot of thoughts to various clerks at various Safeways just because I was like, I don't know, they bag my groceries. I have no serious feelings about them in either direction. So that was convenient. Right, right, right. You know, I was I was teaching my kids to do this and I was like, okay, well, how about our mail carrier? And Fiona was really actually very little when we did this. And she said, Mommy, I love our mail carrier. <laughs> 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 right. 
Okay, but there's another category as well, right? Yes. And that is the people that we're having trouble with, right? The people that we don't have good feelings about already. Somebody who might be, you know, hassling one of our children or making us feel bad or an overly critical in-law or something like that. And so then we send them well wishes too. And the way it kind of goes is, you know, the traditional ones are may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy and strong, may you be filled with ease. And then at the the last little bit is to every, all sentient beings, right? So may all beings everywhere be happy. And it's an interesting thing because the science around this is unreal in terms of how powerful it is. So it's not like you have to become a major philanthropist and give away (laughs) all of your wealth. You just have to sit for a couple of minutes every day and send out these well wishes. And it it's an interesting thing because it does make us feel considerably more connected, right? So it puts us in touch with our feelings of connectedness and that makes us feel safe, right? Our nervous system right. does not like to be isolated. And so when we feel more connected simply by sending well wishes to people, and it also I think makes us feel powerful too. When, you, when you're you know, sending well wishes to somebody who's hassling you a little bit, it does give you the upper hand, I think. <laughs> well, right? I was going to tell you, so much like Fiona, I generally like everybody. So I not only had trouble figuring out who my neutral person was, but there's not that many people who I dislike that heartily, except Ann Coulter. So for months, Ann Coulter was getting my well wishes as I walked the Oakland Hills and saying things like, I wish her health, I wish her ease. It really did make me think for a minute, what would her life be like if she had ease, if she wasn't right. feeling, for, you know, what are the things in her life that are that are causing her to be such a nasty, nasty person? And it did make me, I can't say that I'm sympathetic to her, but it made me consider her as a person in a way that I wouldn't anymore. Now, since January, I got nothing but people to put in that category. So it's different now. Anne's not getting the one-on-one attention. But um, (laughs) I I did. I found that to be not just a, a sort of soothing and meditative practice, but I just found it so interesting from your research that even just thinking good thoughts about people about other people can improve your happiness levels. And it's that's it, kind of, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Well, I think one of the most neglected positive emotions, and I, I should back up and say, you know, we think we're talking about happiness, right? But I just use happiness as a handle for all positive emotions. And there are lots of different, because we're not really just talking about happiness. We're talking about a life that is full of a lot of different types of positive emotions, right? Gratitude and optimism and passion or engagement and love and compassion and inspiration and awe. These are all the things, you know, that make up a happy life. And I think the most overlooked positive emotion is compassion. Mm. And um, we, we don't really think about, I mean, it's not overlooked in certain circles, but just in our general pop culture and as parents, we sort of protect ourselves and our children from other people's suffering. And when you protect yourself from acknowledging that other people are suffering, um, you can't feel compassion. Compassion involves feeling somebody else's suffering and then taking an action to, to alleviate it, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean alleviating it. It means doing something or holding the intention 
to do something. And so sending a, a loving kindness meditation to Donald Trump, he's like right in the category of like, what what would it be if he had ease? What would it right. be if he were a happy person? So for me to come at this place from this place of fear and anger and frustration and all the negative emotions that I might feel around his presidency. I'm assuming it's okay to be political on your yeah, podcast. We've um, lost everybody. As soon as I started talking about Ian Coulter, they dropped off anyway. So oh, okay. So, but but also right. So I'm coming from a place of fear, and then I'm moving myself to a place of compassion, right? right. And there, there is nothing that I can do about his personality disorder other than rise above it and wish him well. See that he is a part of common humanity. Right. Right. That we, he is human just like we are. Right. And, and I, th- flawed. Right. And I think that's when compassion gets difficult when you have to exercise it for somebody for whom it's not easy to exercise compassion. And I think, I mean, exactly. you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a churchgoer. I'm a person of faith. And I think that for me is one of the constant challenges um, in my own spiritual life is you know, faith, you don't, it, it's easy to have faith when things are fine. It's harder when it's hard. It just is. And that's the way, you know, and and this whole notion that you have to be kind to everybody regardless. And that's what we're called to do. That's a really tough, that's a tough thing to wrestle with. But that's what, that's what faith and compassion look like. The, the data around kindness, though, are unequivocal, right? Even if you don't feel called because of your spiritual tradition to be kind to everybody, just know that kindness is the the fastest route to a, both a meaningful and a joyful life, right? It's, happiness in life is not about pursuing things that will make you happy. Happiness is really found by pursuing things that will make other people happy, right? Or at least wishing for them right. happiness. So you've had an interesting decade. Uh, so you've published two best-selling books. You're a very sought-after speaker, and anybody listening to this podcast can tell why. You were divorced, you've remarried, you blended your family, and you've doubled the number of kids you're raising in that process. Yes. So what is your own experience as a Gen X or at the midpoint taught you about your field of expertise? What have you learned about happiness just by going through it, going through life on your own? You know, I think I, I've been thinking a lot lately about expectations and the fantasies that we have about the life that we will have and that will make us happy, right? Like, so I have come to realize at the midpoint for me, I would not call it a midlife crisis, but I feel like I'm watching a lot of women around me sort of grapple with these existential feelings of like, what does it all mean? And why, how, did I, how did I find myself here? And a lot of it has to do with our expectations, right? We have these ideas about the way our lives are supposed to be. And then when our lives aren't at all that way, and when our marriages aren't that way, when our children aren't the way that we fantasize that they would be, when our vacations, our work, all the things don't match our expectations. And sometimes they, of course, exceed our expectations, but mostly... For me, I've had these like really clear ideas of what I thought I wanted. And then I didn't get those things. Um, I didn't have the marriage that lasted. I was married to my first husband for 10 years, and I really thought I'd be married to him for the rest of my life. And it, it was crushing to have that marriage end. I mean, it was just really hard, but I realized I was sort of grieving this fantasy of the way my life would be. And 
So what I, that's a very long-winded way of saying what I have been thinking about a lot lately and what I have realized about happiness at midlife is that a lot of happiness depends on the level of acceptance that you bring to your actual reality, what actually Mm -hmm. is before you. And that does not mean bringing resignation, right? Like it's, there's a really big difference between sort of surrender and acceptance and being resigned to something that you actually don't like. And so there's a, that's a pretty fine line, I think, in some ways. And I've spent a lot of time sort of thinking about what that might be, but what it means to resist reality and how frustrated and anxious that can make us and what it means to accept circumstances that aren't what you imagined And to also accept the emotions that come with those, how you feel about those circumstances. So it could be a circumstance that you never really wanted and you feel really kind of upset about it all. So accepting both the circumstance and the fact that you're upset about it all, right? That level of acceptance for me has brought a greater sense of peace and freedom than than pretty much anything else. Well, see, this is my theory that Gen Xers have been down so long that we don't even know what up looks like. So it actually, <laughs> you know, at all these different points in our lives, the stock market crash, we've had the the recession at the time when we should be climbing up the corporate ladder. So instead, we're just all hanging on for, to our jobs with, for dear life. And I think that's actually a positive attribute because I think for our generation, more so than the boomers, for sure, and probably more than the millennials. I don't think there's such a big difference between our expectations and our reality just because there's we've never gotten anything we expected. You can see how, I mean, for me, I'm just such an overachieving, perfectionistic type. I mean, in recovery, I don't, I mean, you know, <laughs> perfectionism is a particular form of unhappiness. But, but for me, it just took me so long to bring that level of acceptance. We should have just screened we should have screened reality bites for you over and over and over until it all <laughs> got into your head. <laughs> I might not you end know, up with it's a, it's sort of an interesting thing though because it's like I I feel like the great thing that middle age has brought me is this ability to just the acceptance is just non-judgmental. It's not like reality bites, right? Like there's no there's nothing wrong with it. It just is. Right. Right? And to just for so long, I felt like everybody was talking about, oh, we just need to be present, be present, being here now, all that kind of stuff. And I didn't really understand it, even though I was going on meditation retreats and everything. I didn't really like, I was like, okay, yeah, but I'm a planner, right? Like right. I, I have a vision. I make vision boards. I make plans. I set goals, right? That was my personality type. Right. For me now, it's like, oh, oh my God, look at my life. It is so surprising. And I'm so curious what's going to happen next. That is a very different stance than in 2017, I will accomplish X, Y, and Z. Yep, absolutely. So you've tackled happiness. You've tackled overwhelm. What's next? I know you've got some happiness boot camps that I wanted to tell people about, which Christine conducts both online and in person, these workshops, right? Yes, I do. I have I have online classes that kind of just run continuously, but I'm actually pretty excited about an uh, in-person happiness boot camp I'm doing at 1440 Multiversity in August. So christinecarter.com, you can get information about that or 1440's website. 
And then come um, also in August, I'm going to start doing some um, online group coaching that I've done in the past before. It's really fun. I'm going to be doing this with a, a really remarkable friend of mine, Susie Reinhardt, that, and it's going to be called Brave Over Perfect. So oh, if, you, if like me, you've struggled with perfectionism, then this is the group for you. Are you working on a new book? I am. I am working on a new book, but I'm just at the very beginning mm. stages. I'm, I'm thinking about writing a book about, or I've been doing the research for a book about, uh, about marriage. And the book I've been working on for a little bit longer is called Unstuck. So that's where all my workshops come, you know, around helping people get unstuck. Awesome. All right, Christine, it's delightful to talk to you as always. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, so fun. After talking to Christine, I wanted to check myself before I wrecked myself, so I am confirming it here. It was Manuel Noriega in Panama in 1989 with the candlestick with a playlist that doesn't even include Def Leppard. How do I know? Because I found the playlist online on George Washington University's National Security Archive. You know, if you weren't a dictator, it's not a bad party playlist. It includes... Rick Astley, you know which song, Rick Dees, who was on all the KTEL albums I bought in the 70s, Metallica, Joan Jett. Don't worry, I'll post the uh, link to the playlist in the show notes. And it's pretty funny because they were obviously trying to send him a message with the song title. So take a look. But I was curious to know what's the song that would drive you out of an embassy? And I asked over on the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page, what song makes you crazy and volunteered my own kryptonite as a party starter. And that's Little Lion Man by Mumford and Sons. I don't mind Mumford and Sons. This song drives me bonkers. And here's why. Where If this ever comes on the radio, start clapping along to whatever rhythm is established in the song as you're listening. I guarantee you within one stanza, your clapping will be off because they randomly change the rhythm scheme throughout that song and it makes my brain hurt and it makes me crazy. About the songs that make you guys crazy... It was a lively discussion and started off with the mention of actually one of my favorite songs by the Avid Brothers, Ain't No Man. Uh, Skater Boy by Avril Lavigne got mentioned primarily because of the stupid spelling of that song title. And a few people mentioned Anything by Adele, slow songs in particular, because she's too young to be so mopey. Then there was the midlife mixtape follower who is named Adele, and I'm really hoping that it's not that Adele. Things would get 10 kinds of awkward real quickly. Anyway, this Adele says that she can't stay in the song Red Dirt Road, and the reason? Because Jesus does not rhyme with pieces, ever. But in our completely non-scientific poll, there were four songs that rose above the rest in terms of driving people insane. One was Lady in Red. I don't think we're going to find much argument there. Counting Crow's version of Big Yellow Taxi, pretty bad, agreed. Uh, we built this city. No, Marconi did not play the Mambo. But the big winner or loser song, as it were, Elton John's Crocodile Rock. Somebody go back and check and see if that was on the Manuel Noriega playlist, because I think if it had been, he would have been out of there in a day. No problem. I don't think I need to tell you. We need to keep this list of songs secret from our children. They'll crank this shit up to 11 if they know it bothers us. I wanted to tell you guys a couple of upcoming um, appearances that you may be interested in on Wednesday, July 19th. If you're in Oakland or in the East Bay, 
I am going to be in conversation with author Todd Statman at A Great Good Place for Books in the Montclair District of Oakland. Um, Details on the Midlife Mixtape page, but Todd is launching his YA book that night. It's called Please Don't Be Waiting for Me. And it's this really riveting YA book. It's coming of age. It's a murder mystery. And the best part about it is it's all set against the backdrop of the punk rock scene in 1980s San Francisco, thereby validating the assumption I had at age 15 that there were teenagers out there doing things so much more interesting than what I was doing in Rochester, New York. Todd's Todd was there. Todd was living it. And uh, yeah, apparently I was right. Everybody had a cooler life than me when I was a teenager. So anyway, I'll be talking with Todd about this book. Come on over and join us. Seven o'clock. Great Good Place for Books in Oakland on Wednesday, July 19th. If you're in the Bay Area on August 12th, a Saturday night, I will be DJing to benefit Bay Area food banks uh, at the Cat Club in San Francisco. And And I'll be on the wheels of steel from 10 to 11. I'm just starting to work on my playlist, which will be revised 742 times before that night. Um, But if you guys have suggestions of what I should play, let me know. You can email me at dj at midlifemixtape.com or find me on social media at midlifemixtape. So that's it for this week's show. Join me next time when I talk to painter Isabel Samaras, who uses old world painting techniques and composition to memorialize much more modern subjects, the beloved pop culture icons of our Gen X youth. So think Madonna and Child, only the characters are from Planet of the Apes, or Venus Rising from the Ocean, you know, the old Venus on the Half Shell painting, only it's Ginger from Gilligan's Island. Isabel has a lot to say about what she believes is our generation's shared mythology, and she'll also talk with us about what it feels like when you're no longer the new young thing in the art market. You'd be surprised at what takes its place. It's a pretty lovely story. So have a great week, you guys. Thanks again for tuning in. I wanna be, I wanna be free by